Amen. Well, tonight we are going to be in Genesis chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to the book of Genesis. And one of my favorite actors growing up was Jim Carrey. That anyone else is just like anything his in, you're like, oh, I got to see that. Except for the dumb movies he's in. He's in a few dumb ones. They're just scary. Like, why'd you do that? You're a funny guy. Well, he's in this great movie called Liar, Liar. And in Liar, Liar, his whole deal is he's incapable of being honest. Even to his kid, like even just being dependable, like, hey, I'm gonna be at your birthday party. He can't do it. It's just everything about him is he's a liar, but he's a really, he's great at it. He's honed his craft and he's a phenomenal lawyer because of it. Like that's his whole character is the dude is just not trustworthy, just vile and, and a liar. He's liar, liar, pants on fire. That's the guy. And what happens to him is his son is really just devastated that his dad didn't hold his word, didn't show up to the birthday party. And so he wishes, I just wish for one day my dad couldn't tell a lie. Which is brutal, right? <laughs> and by some cosmic force, he wakes up the next day and he can't. He's completely incapable of lying and causes him to be quite rude at some points. And what happens is he ends up in court. He has to use the restroom. So he goes on this whole tangent on just the, the health deficit of not using the restroom when you have to use the restroom. The judge goes, is that true? He goes, well, it has to be. It's such a great, for the people in the know, it's such a great line because it's like, well, if I said it, it has to be true. It's just, it's, for me, it's always been one of the funniest lines in the movie. Is that true? It has to be. Like, he's even a little shocked. The kind of God that we have, if he says it, it has to be true. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it seems completely impossible, even if it seems so outlandish and far-fetched and unbelievable, if he said it, well, it has to be true. And so we're going through a story right now in the book of Genesis following a guy's life, a guy named Abraham. And God has made him a promise that at this point in his life is starting to sound really far-fetched, really unbelievable, and he holds on to it because it just has to be true. And so if you don't know the story, just a quick recap is we, we first get introduced to him in chapters 12 and 13, where Abraham, he gets called by God and says, hey, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave comfort. I want, to leave you, I want you to leave your security, your inheritance, your community. And I want you to head to a place that you don't know. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you this place. And Abraham, with incredible trust, he does that. He says, okay. And he trusts God. And he, he heads out to a land he doesn't know, leaving behind everything he has known. Then in chapter 14, we see his nephew Lot, who's a, a lot of trouble. And he gets a he follows with Abraham, he gets kidnapped. He ends up being captured by this confederacy of kings and taken up north. And so Abraham gets together 318 guys and goes and rescues Lot. He's just this hero. You think, wow, this Abraham guy is pretty cool. Then in chapter 15, God shows up to Abraham and says, hey, I know you're 84 years old, which is pretty old. And he says, I'm gonna give you a son. And through you, all the nations of the world are gonna be blessed. Sarah is 65 years old. God says, look at the stars. If you could count them, if you could number them, so would your descendants be. Abraham amens God, and that's counted to him as righteousness. And then chapter 16 is the valley. 
It's a valley chapter where he tries to create kids on his own and he gets his wife's servant, Hagar, and she gets pregnant with Ishmael. And in chapter 17, God shows up and says, hey, I haven't given up on you. Despite all your mistakes, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. And I want everyone around you to know that I'm your God and you're my people. In chapters 18 and 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroys it. Chapter 20, Abraham does this stellar husband thing where he lies about his wife, gives her over to Abimelech to be in his harem. In a hysterical way, God makes the entire people underneath Abimelech not be able to perform the duties of a man. Funniest thing in the Bible to me. Maybe it's just me. I just can't get over it. And Abimelech, this pagan king, he actually ends up rebuking Abraham because of his unrighteousness. Why didn't you tell me that this was your wife? Why didn't, why didn't you say that? You almost got me killed. And so now we're in chapter 21. And some time has passed. Sarah has gotten pregnant with the promised kid and Abraham is a hundred years old. And so here's how verse chapter 21, verse one starts. Yahweh, anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Bible, it's the covenant name of God, it's Yahweh. Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised. So the first thing it starts out with is, as he had said, as he had promised, God does what he says he's going to do. 25 years earlier, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm gonna multiply you. I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. You won't be able to number the descendants, but it took time. It took 25 years of holding on, not getting pregnant, not seeing things happen, and God doesn't give him a son when it's possible. You see that at 86, you'd be like, wow, that's a choice. But right on, man, we're stoked for you. We're happy you finally had a kid. It's about time. That's not when he has a kid. Right now, news goes around that Sarah's pregnant and people are thinking, no, I don't think so. I think you're talking of someone else because Abraham is a hundred years old. God doesn't allow them to have a kid when it's logical or reasonable or it makes sense. Or you could say, yeah, it's about time. God gives them a kid when it's completely unfeasible. When you say, no, there's no way that's impossible. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is where God, he seems to stack the deck against himself. Where the odds already seem bad, God goes, oh no, it could be way worse and I'm still gonna come out on top, watch this. So what happens is Israel's just being crushed and it's because Israel keeps turning away from God and they, they, as a response, God allows these enemy nations to come in and, and crush them for a season so they'll ultimately turn back to him. And so that's happening. And so there's a, a kid in a wine press who's scared and hiding and his name's Gideon and God shows up to him and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, nah, not me. You've got the wrong guy. He goes, no, I'm gonna have you be the general of this army that's gonna come and set Israel free. And he goes, yeah, hold on. So I'm, I'm not only the youngest kid in my family, but my family's the least important of all of the tribes of Israel. And, and I'm literally a nobody. I'm, I'm the bottom of the barrel. I'm the least important of the smallest group possible right now. And God, I love this. God's response to him is, yeah, 
but I'll be with you. How cool is that? Like, no, I know exactly who you are. It's very important to me that you are hiding in a wine press. Like, that's, it's, it's the funniest, your introduction to this guy that you're like, you teach him in the kids wing, you're like, Gideon! He was like, you got the wrong dude. But not only that, what happens is Gideon rallies an army around him. And he says, okay, God said he's gonna be with me and we're gonna take back our land. And there's a group who says, okay, let's do that. And it's 32,000 people. So 32,000 men go to march against this army that previously in the Bible, how Judges 6 starts is it says, they were like locusts, that you can't even number the, the multitude of the people and their camels that would come to ravage Israel. You can't even number them. So you just think, this is a massive, unconquerable force. And so he's got 32,000. You think, well, the numbers there are already pretty bad, right? So God comes to Gideon and says, hey, I need to talk to you about the number of guys in your army. Gideon's like, oh, Okay, I'm glad you brought it up because this has been an issue for me for a while. And God says, yeah, you got way too many. And Gideon's like, no, okay, I wish I started. You should let me go first, right? <laughs> like that, that wasn't what I had in mind. In fact, this is what God says. It's Judges 6, 16. And Yahweh said to him, no, that's the I will be with you. It's Judges 7, 2 says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. And I feel like Gideon would say, I'll make it a law that they can't say that. Those words are illegal now, right? It's like, you give me the 32. And God says, no, it's just too many. We can't do that. So go down there and tell them, hey, if any of you are afraid, nervous about this battle at all, I want you guys to go home. And so Gideon goes down, stands in front of that army and says, hey, if you guys are fearful, if you guys don't want to go to battle tomorrow, you can leave right now, no judgment. And 22,000 people say, peace. <laughs> and leave. Can you imagine you watch more than a third of your army just walk away? And so now there's 10,000 people. And God shows up and says, hey, I need to talk to you about the number of people in your army. And Gideon's like, yeah, we got to talk. And God goes, it's too many. And Gideon's like, I just don't think it is. Right? Like 10,000, are you kidding me? And so God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I need you to go down to the, have them go down to the river. You're, there's going to be two categories of people that naturally show up. One of them are the kind of guys who go down and get into the water to drink. The others are the kind that kneel down and lap water into their hand and bring it up into their face and drink. And I'm gonna make a distinction right then and there of who's gonna be in your army and who isn't. Gideon goes, okay. And I've heard commentators teach this. They taught that there was a group of people who were military just strategists and they wanted to keep their eyes on the horizon for the enemies. And so they go up to the water and they're keeping vigilant and they scoop up water. And I don't think that's true because that doesn't line up with how God has been treating this whole scenario, right? Then I heard this other commentator and I think he's correct. You have a group of people who are like, oh, there's water and they get into it and drink. And you have a group of people who are like, oh, there's water. And my back has just been killing me. And it just, I get down and, and they can't quite, they're, they're feeble, they're weak, they're older. They're probably just, you know, mid fifties. <laughs> they're older, I don't know their age. 
but they're, they're older people and they're probably not the right soldiers. They weren't the people that you wanted. And God goes, them's the guys. And Gideon's like, okay, everyone else go. And there's 300 men left with Gideon against a giant, giant, giant army. And it's impossible. And God goes, now I got you where I want you where it's completely impossible, where it's completely unrealistic, where you can't possibly save yourself or get yourself out from this. Got you right where I want you. Now I'm gonna do something. And if you know the story, what happens is God confuses the enemy. The enemy rages against itself and essentially gives the victory to Gideon. And all he has to do is walk after it. That's all he has to do is walk after it and take hold of the spoils and gather the kings and say, you're not gonna do this to us anymore. How amazing is that? That's the kind of God that we have. As he said, as he promised, God did it. Not because of Gideon's skill or ingenuity or brilliance or able to lead. It's as he said, as he promised, he did it. God will do what he said. And so Jesus, he makes promises to you and to me. A promise Jesus makes you and me, you can see it in John 16, 33. It says, in me, you have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. There's gonna be tribulation. There's gonna be hardship. There's gonna be distress. There's gonna be pain. There's gonna be issues. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus is saying, I've got a promise for you. There's gonna be sorrow, but I'm gonna turn your sorrow to joy. There's gonna be pain. There's gonna be hardship. There's gonna be issues. And what you see happens to Sarah right here is while there was so much times that she went to bed distressed and, and frustrated that she just couldn't get pregnant, Jesus turned her sorrow to joy just as God promised he did. And so verse two says this, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. I like how it makes it really clear. It was Sarah. It just makes it so clear. Yeah, that, that woman. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. God told him to do something, he did it. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Dude, dude is old, man. To imagine you're raising a kid at a hundred years old. I'm 30 and my kids came into my room at two o'clock in the morning last night. I'm like, I'm done being a parent. Just, I can't, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> Verse six, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in my old age. They laugh because it's, it's impossible. It's incredible. It's so inconceivable. You can't help but laugh. Abraham is the only man who goes to Walmart and buys both diapers and depends. Like it is, it is so shocking and surprising. You can't help but laugh at it. It's unbelievable, but it's true. And Sarah, for such a long, long time, has been living in a reality full of sorrow. She couldn't give Abraham a son. In that time, that was really, that's what she's supposed to do, to give him an heir. It, there would have been a lot of 
pressure on her and a view on her that it's her failure, her inability to conceive is a personal failure of hers. And so she'd so often go to bed at night thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get it together? She's getting desperate to the point, point where she finally says, you know what, fine, why don't you sleep with my slave servant, Hagar? Why don't you just have a baby through her? She's getting so desperate, she finally says, you know what, let's do that. And that just leads to her being more miserable and more depressed and more disappointed and more hurt. But now her sorrow, her disappointment, her hurt has turned to joy has turned to laughter, has turned to celebration. It has happened. And you and me, we live in a broken and fallen world. And tonight, a lot of parents are gonna go to home and they're gonna go to bed in the reality where their kids have been murdered. You see it happening in Israel right now where you say that is unjust, that is evil. How could God allow that? What is going on? And there's disappointment and there's heartache and there's a real enemy who's very good at what he does, whose entire goal is to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus tells you and me, I will turn your sorrow to joy. I am the one who can do that. It is a promise. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in that brilliant book, Lord of the Rings, there's a scene where you have Frodo and Sam and they watch their friend, their mentor, their hero, their leader of their troop, Gandalf, stand between them and this ancient enemy called a Balrog. For all the nerds, it's a Balrog. And the Balrog is coming after this group and Gandalf says, no, you are not gonna pass. And what happens is Frodo and Sam watch Gandalf get taken down into what seems an endless abyss and they perceive what they can only expect is their friend just died in front of them. And they go the rest of that story not knowing if Gandalf made it or not, believing that he didn't make it. And they go through heartache and they go through disappointment and they go through separation and they go all the way and they see Sauron get defeated and they see the ring get destroyed and both of them end believing that they're gonna die. If you've seen the movie, there's the lava coming around and they both pass out dehydrated on a rock before eagles come and grab them. If you've not seen the movie, this sounds so dumb, but that's what happens. <laughs> Brilliant movie, even better book. And there's a scene that's in the book that didn't make it into the movie somehow. But in the book, Sam wakes up and he can't believe he's alive. He wakes up in what's essentially a hospital bed. He looks over and he sees Gandalf. And he says, like, I... I don't understand what's happening. And the quote that he shares is, is everything sad coming untrue? What is happening to the world? In Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. One day God is gonna set everything right and you and I will stand in eternity and we'll say, is everything sad coming untrue? And parents will see their kids, and you'll see those who stood up for righteousness and for truth and were cut down and people will be reunited and, and there will be laughter and there'll be joy and there will be celebration. Go, I can't even believe it, but it's true. Jesus says, I can turn your sorrow to joy. And that's looking towards the future. Jesus says, I can do that today. But you and I need to remember 
We live in a broken and a fallen world and we need to hold onto that promise. Jesus is gonna make it all right. The things that are happening in this world that I cannot understand, that I cannot comprehend right now that are so evil and wicked, I can trust Jesus is gonna make it all right. There's nothing too grand or too big for him. And so verse eight, and the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a feast on that day and Isaac on the day that Isaac was weaned. So time has gone on. Isaac is somewhere around four or five, maybe three, but I doubt it. So somewhere around four or five, we've seen four or five years pass. And so at this time, Ishmael's looking like he's somewhere between 16 and 19 years old. And there's this celebration. There's this party. And how could they not party? You know, there's a huge step that for my kid is he's, he's growing. He's a boy. It's, we get to have life with this kid that God promised. How exciting is this? And then verse nine, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. This is Ishmael. This is Abraham's first son, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. This isn't happy laughter. This is something that is gonna cause a problem for the family. This is in some way, shape or form, a mockery either of the child or of Sarah or of both. And it's gonna cause a divide right now. And so in verse 10, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. You've got this family gathering, you've got this celebration, you have this time that should be so good and instead you have this major rift being developed and it breaks Abraham's heart. Sarah says, I'm not gonna have my son raised with the son of this slave woman. And you gotta remember, Abraham loves Ishmael. Like when God previously showed up and said, hey, I'm still gonna give you a son that's gonna be your heir. Abraham's like, I, I got an heir. I got, I got a 13-year-old kid already. And God said, no, and I'm still gonna bless that kid because he's your son, but the covenant that I'm gonna make with, with you is coming through another kid and his name is gonna be Isaac. Abraham loves this son and now Sarah says, I'm not gonna have him here. You need to kick him out. And it breaks Abraham's heart. And in verse 12, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Genesis 17, God shows up to Hagar, the mom and says, I'm gonna bless Ishmael. I'm gonna make him fruitful. I'm gonna multiply him. He will father princes and God will make him into a great nation. God's gonna establish his covenant with Isaac, but God isn't gonna forsake Ishmael. He's not gonna overlook him. He's not gonna forget him. And God made that promise in chapter 17 and he brings it up here again. I'm gonna make a nation out of him. If God says he's gonna do something, is he gonna do it? Yes. So verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. 
and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And you just think, how in the world could Abraham do that? He gives her a little bit of bread and he gives her a skin of water, which would have been a goat skin. They would have sewed it up and it could hold about three gallons of water. Three gallons of water in a desert is not a ton. And Beersheba is not a kind place. Beersheba is the kind of place where even in spring, it's a desert. It's dry, it's desolate, it's hard. And you think, how could Abraham let his son go? How could Abraham just say, hey, you know what? You guys are peacing out. Here's, here's all you need, bye. I think it's actually a big step of faith for Abraham because God said, I'm gonna make a nation out of that boy. And if God said it, he's gonna do it. He hasn't lied yet. And so I can trust, okay, God is gonna do something as hard as this is, letting Ishmael go. As difficult as this is, Abraham is saying, okay, God, I trust you. I don't have control over this family situation. I don't have control over this dynamic that's developed at my house. I don't have control over my kid or of my home. I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna give it over to God and I'm gonna trust you with it. You said you will, and I'm gonna believe that you will. Sometimes parents have to do this with their kids where we say, okay, if you, for a season, you're gonna have to go wander the desert and I'm gonna trust that God is gonna have to look over you because I can't anymore. I can't be, keep being your fallback person. I can't keep being an enabler for you. I have to let you go. So this morning I got to sit down with the dad. His dad's got a 21 year old who for 16 years has struggled with, with drugs and her drug of choice at the moment is meth. He's a 21 year old girl and he is so frustrated. And he was just telling me like, he's a believer, mom's a believer, and he just goes, somewhere I messed up. Somewhere I just raised my kid wrong is what he said to me. And at some point he had to say, okay, God, I trust you. I'm gonna trust you with my kid. I'm gonna trust that you love her infinitely more than I could ever love her. And I'm gonna trust that you will bring her back to you and she'll wander for a season and she'll see this is not what she wants and she'll come back home. And this morning at five o'clock in the morning, she called him and said, dad, I don't wanna do this anymore. And so he came to Edgewater and we were able to hook him up with a place in Eugene that will detox her for until the meth is out of her system completely. And then she'll be in a one-year program where she's walking with people who love Jesus and want to see her do well and not return back to that life. And he's stoked. It's like brand new life in him. And it's something where if she, if he continues to enable, that won't happen. If you continue to allow her to stay, she won't find out this leads to emptiness and to heartbreak and to pain. And so as difficult as it may be, sometimes this is what needs to happen. Okay, I'm gonna let them go. Okay, I'm gonna trust you with my kid. And that's what Abraham does here. He says, okay, God, you're going to do something with Ishmael. I'm gonna trust you in it. It's out of my hands. I believe you. And so verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a, the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. 
I don't know, it, it's not Veggie Tales, but there was some cartoon as a kid I remember watching, and she had Ishmael, but he was a baby. I don't know if any of you guys remember that, but she had a baby and she put and she's hung, she's thirsty out in the, the wilderness and she puts him in there. She goes, I guess he's just gonna die. He's 16 at the least, or 19 at the most. He's he's grown. So you, the picture you're getting is they're dehydrated and they're done. She pushes him under a bush because he can't go any further. They're at the complete end of their rope and she's like, this is the end. Hagar had been living a really, really hard life where she, there's probably a lot of deep resentment and hurt because of, it wasn't her idea to sleep with Abraham. That was Sarah's idea. That was put on her. It wasn't her fault that she got pregnant. Now her and her son are rejected. They're cast out. They're in this wilderness and now they're going to die. And in verse 17, God hears, and here's what he said. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. It's a little interesting that you, you say, well, what do you mean he heard the voice of the boy? Do you guys remember what Ishmael means? It means God hears. It was kind of fascinating as you read that because he's saying, I heard the voice of the boy. The boy's name is God hears. It's kind of interesting. Then verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the thoughts I have for you, thoughts of peace to bring you to a glorious end. God comes right at the end, right when it seems impossible, like there's no hope. And he says, I've got you. And how silly is verse 19? She opens her eyes, God opens her eyes and she sees a well of water. How do you miss that? Doesn't that seem so fascinating? But isn't it the case that when you and I are frustrated and we're hurt and we're disappointed and someone tries to give us insight and comfort, we just we either refuse to see what they're saying or we just can't see it? Maybe you've been on the opposite end of that where you're sitting across from someone who's hurt and dejected and feeling pained and feeling like someone has just really offended and wronged them and you try to counsel them and to speak encouragement to them and they just can't see it because they they're so fixated on their pain and on their hurt, they just can't see what you're talking about. There's a story in 2 Kings where there's a man named Elisha and Elisha has a servant. And one day that servant, he wakes up, 2 Kings 6, and he wakes up and he says, uh, servant goes and he makes toast, he makes breakfast, avocado toast, he's a millennial. And he goes and heads to the front door and he opens the door and just screams and slams the door shut because what he sees outside is this entire army of an enemy king who's fed up with Elisha. He says, I'm gonna kill that guy. And the servant looks outside only to see that they're surrounded and it's over for them. And so Elisha comes to the door and he opens the door and he looks around and he goes, 
What's the problem? And the servant says, the dudes with the swords are the problem. This is the Justin Cabot version. This isn't like New King James. And they're like, the guys with the swords are the problem. And, and Elisha looks at him like he's confused. And he says, God, would you open his eyes like you've opened my eyes? And the servant looks outside and he sees chariots of fire and soldiers of the armies of the living God standing around them that far outnumber and outshine and outpower the enemy force. And the servant's like, oh yeah, we're good. How many times when you and I are pained, should we just stop and, and not, not freak out, not get frustrated, not lash out, but we just say, God, will you open up my eyes? Is there a well right in front of me and I'm just refusing to see it? God, can you just help me to see this situation the way that you see the situation? When someone offends and hurts us, we should pray, God, will you help me see this person the way you see this person? Because that's your kid and you love them and you sympathize with them just like you love me and care for me and sympathize with me. Will you help me see them the way that you see them? I think sometimes we just need to have our eyes open like God opens her eyes and God says to Hagar, I'm gonna be with the boy. I'm not giving up on him. I'm not gonna forget him. And this time in the wilderness may have been the very best thing for Ishmael. That through this experience, that was difficult and heartbreaking for his dad, he became something. He became the kind of man who could take care of a family, the kind of man who would raise princes, the kind of man who could be the father of a nation. Because his dad trusted God and said, okay, I'm gonna let him go. God does what he says he's going to do. And so the chapter ends with this strange side story of Abimelech and Abraham again. So as a reminder, Abimelech is the king from the last chapter who Abraham said, Sarah, my wife is actually my sister. She can be in your harem. And God almost killed Abimelech over it. Okay, so now verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. So somehow over this period of time, Abraham has been demonstrating the kind of lifestyle to where even Abimelech would say, God is with this guy. Do I live that kind of life? Do we live that kind of life where people who are in our workplace, at our jobs, our neighbors, our family say, God is with this guy in everything that he does? because Abraham somehow mirrored that in his life. In verse 23, here's what Abimelech says to him. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Abraham, Abimelech is looking down the line at his kids and his kids' kids and says, I want to think about them. I know that this guy is something special and I want him to be an ally. I want to stay friends with this guy, Abraham. And in verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, 
I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I've not heard about it until today. Abimelech's like, are you kidding me? God almost killed us over this guy's wife over a misunderstanding, and now my servants have vindictively stolen a well from him? Are they out of their minds? And I, I love his response. For some reason, this has been so funny to me all day today. I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until today. Just like over-explaining it. Dude, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> like, it, it's just, to me, this line is so funny. And so verse 27, so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree there in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. This is the first time in the Bible you see the term the everlasting God. Looking at this well, which is so important, and says, I know after this well goes dry, after these problems are out of my mind and I don't think about them anymore, after the days end and the sun burns out, my God is still gonna be here. Nothing outlasts God, nothing supersedes him. In verse 34, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So it's a really interesting way to end the chapter because when you live in a desert, there's nothing more important than a well. A well is life. A well is your only source of doing life. And Abraham gets his well snatched up by Abimelech. And so what does Abraham do? He doesn't get revenge. He doesn't get vindictive. He doesn't even complain. He does nothing. He goes, okay. I trust that in Deuteronomy, God says, vengeance is mine. I'll trust God with it. I'll trust that God's got it handled because everywhere else in my life where I try to get involved and get to put myself in the place of God, it always backfires on me and it hurts me and it hurts my wife and it hurts my kids and I'm gonna trust God with it. And what happens is you see these two parties get together, one of them realizing, oh my gosh, I've wronged you. Let me make it right. And they put a covenant together there that lasts for a long time. And you see Abraham ends up with water and he ends up with peace in the land of the Philistines. And something that you and I can often forget as we study the book of Genesis is the book of Genesis was originally written to a group of mud brick baking slaves that had just been freed from Egypt. And they're gonna be wandering around in a desert for 40 years. And their number one enemy are the Philistines. And the number one thing that they need to rely on is there's gonna be some source of clean water ahead. And I think what God is showing right here is, hey, if I took care of Abraham and I got him water and I gave him peace in the land of the Philistines, you can trust me to do it today. If I didn't give up on him then, I'm not gonna give up on you now. And that's, I believe, a promise that you and I can hold on to as well. If God didn't give up on Abraham, he's not gonna forget me. If God didn't forget Isaac, he's not gonna forget me. If God didn't even forget Ishmael, 
He won't forget me. Sure, sometimes God may wait until it's absolutely impossible, improbable, the, the scariest time to demonstrate his power, his control. Absolutely, that may happen. But only because God wants to have the kind of story in your life where you could say, oh, it was God. God had me. And now I walk through life knowing and trusting God's got it. And I don't have to get vengeance when I'm hurt. I don't have to go complain. I don't have to go gossip about the situations that pain me and frustrate me and make me feel upset. No, my God's got it. I can trust him with it. He sees, he knows. Even when I get pained and there's a well right in front of me and there's hope right in front of me, I have the kind of God who can open my eyes and who can allow me to see that well. God does just as he says. You and I have the kind of God who says over and over again that we can have access to the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding that he'll guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I want access to that. And the way that you actually get that enabled in your life is you say, just like Abraham, amen. I'm gonna choose to believe God, even though it's impossible, improbable, frustrating, not what my flesh wants to do. I'm gonna amen God, I'm gonna trust in him today. Let's be that kind of people. So Jesus, thank you for calling us your people, not because we were anything great, not because we had all this untapped potential, but you called us your own because you love us, that we're your kids and you desire for us to have a relationship with you where we lean on you and trust in you and talk to you and believe that you're gonna do what you say. And so Jesus, help us be the kind of people who have ears to hear when you speak to us through your word in the, in the quiet of our souls. And Jesus, help us be the kind of people who have eyes to see when you're working through a situation that's difficult and frustrating and heartbreaking. Give us eyes to see people and situations the way that you see. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.